The $6 million question is, what is this God that Jung is talking about? But what is Yahweh? In effect, he's putting Yahweh on the couch. That, that's the entire genius of what Jung's doing, is you know, putting God on the couch. As also, if one were to look at it from a, a, from a faith perspective, that's the entire problem, is that you don't put God on the couch. Welcome back to Psychology on the Cross. In this episode, I have the great pleasure to welcome back Paul Bishop for a conversation about Jung's late work, Answer to Job. After finishing writing it in May 1951, Jung wrote in a letter to Angela Jaffe, I have landed the great whale, I mean Answer to Job. I can't say I have fully digested this toward the force of the unconscious. It still goes on rumbling a bit, rather like an earthquake. Paul Bishop is probably the scholar who most deeply dived into and tried to understand this provocative work of Jung. His book, Answer to Job, a Commentary, was published in 2002 by Routledge. In this episode, Paul helps us unpack this important work of Jung and understand its importance for today. I hope you will enjoy this episode. It's great, again, to, to sit down and talk to you, Paul. I really appreciated our last conversation. As I think I told you after that, you should have your own podcast because there's so much to talk about. I could imagine already a few more episodes together with you. Well, thank you very much. <laughs> That's kind of you to say, Jakob. Uh, good, to, uh, good to be in conversation with you, with you again. I certainly think you're, t- you're addressing yourself to really important topics at the moment. So, so it's a pleasure to have this discussion with you this morning. I thought we should address what Jung called the great whale. Jung did write in a letter to Angela Jaffe from Bollingen that I finally landed the great whale, and he was referring to answer to Job. The podcast about Jungian psychology and Christianity is not worthy without really addressing this whale and this mm-hmm. great work of Jung, but also this greatly criticized work of Jung, and yeah. maybe also greatly misunderstood work. Let's see. I know, Paul, that you are probably one of the people in this world who spent most time really digging into the book. I would want to start by asking you, how, how would you describe this book of you and, and what, what type of book is it? I think it's a very good question. Of course, it's, it, it's the question we can also ask now about the red book, black book, which weren't available when I was writing the, the, the commentary on Answer to Job. Obviously, you know, what, what sort of a book is this is a very good, is, is a very good starting point. And, and, in the, and in the case of to Answer to Job, I think the first thing is to think about what's there in that, in that title in German, because I think it's, it's, it, it loses something in, in translation. And the, the German title is, as, as you'll know, Antwort auf Schaub. And if that antwort of is, is just so much more dynamic than, than answer to, because it's kind of, but well, it's both an answer to, but it's also in a sense of, you know, a, a response and a reaction. It's, it's a much more dynamic kind of interaction, I think, with it. And I think that's typical of other aspects of Jung's thought, which would get lost in translation, as it were, simply to do with the, you know, the Tuka des these these fine points of language. I think, for example, of the phrase confrontation with the unconscious, which, which loses that interactivity, which is there in the German Auseinandersetzung mit dem Unbewusstsein. So the Auseinandersetzung is in the sense of, of a dialogue, an engagement of, of, of working with confrontation with the unconscious as if you sort of, you know, gone around a corner too quickly and suddenly bumped into it. Auseinandersetzung is a much richer kind of term. And I think it's there with Antwort of Schaub is this, is this sense of 
it, it's a response to do. It's, it's not simply an answer. It's a response to, well, if it's an answer, what's the question, I suppose, would be the thing. What is it that, that Jung is responding to in that, uh, in, in that work? And I think that then raises the question about its, about its genre. What kind of work is this? Is this a work of, is this a work of, to, to put it in its most banal terms, it, is this a work of psychology? Is it a work of philosophy? Is it a work of theology? And of course, again, that's a typically Jungian kind of mixture of all of those things moving around. And on my read, my reading of it, and going back, looking at what I had written in 2002, I both kind of agreed and disagreed with, my, with myself in, in relation to it. It seems to me that it shows Jung doing this trick that he has of, of moving from one stepping stone to another, that when somebody says, well, that's not right theologically, he says, well, I'm doing psychology. When somebody says, well, that's all right psycholo psychologically, he says, oh, well, that's because I'm doing stuff. So he's constantly moving around there. And that makes Answer to Job such a, such a fascinating, such a kind of tricky book as well, because it's, it's this interstitial work. It's, it's, between these, it's between these areas. It's interdisciplinary in a, in a preeminent sense. It's intercultural as, as well. It, it's, it really is just a fantastic piece of writing. And I think that's one of the things which you know, Jung doesn't always get the credit for, that he is a great writer in this particular, in this particular work. He's produced something which is, which is a fascinating text, and, it, and it's a very, very clever piece of, piece of writing. And I think that's kind of fed into some of the discussion that's been there around it, that, that what Jung wanted to do with it is to, is to get our response to what he's talking about in Germany. Mm. And, and where should one fit this in, in Jung's own life? Where did this come from? Do you have any information on that biographically? There'd be things 1952, I think, when he, when he works on it. I think one of the things that we can see now is, is that it, it fits into a, a continuity of the project of analytical psychology, if you like, which, which begins with the Red Bull. And there are points of contact between what's going on in the Red Book, if I in any way understood it correctly, and, and what he's doing all these decades later in, in, in answer to Joe. That's not to say they're saying exactly the same kind of, the same kind of thing. Obviously, the Red Book is a personal work in a different sense from, 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 from answer to Job, because answer to Job situates itself in the biblical tradition in a, in a very clear and obvious and, and obvious fashion. At the same time, of course, it's also situating itself in a very German cultural context as well, because of course the, that opening scene in the biblical book of Job where, where, where Satan and, and Yahweh, Satan and God are talking, are talking to each other is the basis for the prologue in heaven at the, the start of Goethe's Faust. And I think we can see there how Jung's reception of, of Goethe Jung's engagement with, with, with theology are, are different aspects of a, a similar problem that he's, he's working through. And that goes all the way back if we're to leave memory chain reflections to some of his earliest experiences as a, as a young child as well. Mm. So then God is sending the devil as a temptation or the tempting aspect of uh, God also as someone that can tempt you into development. Well, yeah. well that, that's right. The, the basic premise of the the opening of, of, of the book of Job is this conversation that takes place, this kind of, kind of divine wager 
as it's then going to be presented in Goethe's and Goethe's Faust between God and, and and one of the sons of God who is who is a tempter or who is an an, an adversary. So who is who is not not tempting so much in the sense that we might think about it, but as someone who is there to to provoke, okay? who's going to who's going to test, scrutinise, I suppose one might say, scrutinise, if you like that translation, and and that really sets up the theological context for the for the work, which is to answer the question. Where does evil come from? That's that's I think the the, the purpose of the uh, the biblical book, which is part of the part of the wisdom literature in the in, in the Hebrew Bible, in what Christians like call the old the Old Testament, and therefore as a piece of wisdom literature, it is trying to reason. It is it is trying to reflect on the nature of wisdom itself. That's to say, also God, because God is wisdom, or wisdom is an aspect of is, is an aspect of God, and it's answering the question, or trying to answer the question, or explaining why you can't answer the question: Why is there evil? Why do bad things happen? Of course, such a such a timeless question, and valid then and valid now. Why do why do terrible things happen? Why do bad things happen to to innocent people? So it's a genuine problem there, and it's one which, again, if we're to believe member of Trinity Reflections. Jung says at a very early stage, and he relates it again to his reading of Faust, which is, why is there evil? Why is there Mephistopheles? Why does Faust have to go to the have to go to the mothers? Why is there evil? And in what sense is good dependent on evil? And I think it's a very tricky formulation. It's a very difficult idea that, that Jung is trying to engage with there, and a problematic one, dangerous one in some ways that we might want to come. Back and, and and reflect on it there, but it, it's fitting into this biblical tradition of wisdom literature. To use a philosophical term, it's it's an act of what Leibniz would call theodicy, um, the justification of God. And, and what would be Jung's attempt of answering that question? Then why is there evil? If this is working through of that question, is it possible? What would be Jung's reply? I think I think the answer is is to do with the dynamic that's that's worked through in the in the case of the Book of Job. There is a psychological dynamic that, that Jung wants to to trace in that work, which is part of an overarching dynamic which he sees across the biblical text, the biblical periods as a as a whole. And one of the first things that I wanted to to do in the in, in the commentary was was just to try and sort out some of the some of the chronology because the way that the work is structured, which I think is structured in a very clever, clever way, um, always starts in media res with the book of Job and then launches back to look at, at early biblical texts and then forward to look at the New Testament and in particular the, the apocalyptic tradition of the of, of the New Testament. And so what Jung is trying to do is to track the psychological development that goes on in the book of Job and place that within the terms of a larger development as, as he sees it, as he describes it in this configuration, which is called Yahweh. And, and, and that's why the $6 million question is, what is this God that Jung is talking about? What is Yahweh? In effect, he's putting Yahweh on the couch. And that seems to me, if you think about it in that way, that, that's the entire genius of what, of what Jung's doing, is you know, putting God on the couch. As also, if one were to look at it from a, a, from a faith perspective, that's the entire problem, is that you don't put God on the couch. That's just not what you do. We're not able to do it. 
in a sense, it's what Job tries to do as, as well, or, or Job and his, and his friends, is to put God on the couch, is to try and, and uh, think their way through and in turn make their own accusations of, of God until the point, the turning point comes where God speaks out of the whirlwind and puts Job, as it were, back in his, back in his place. But Jung, I think, rightly draws attention to this, this, this pivotal moment, this, this shift that he thinks that's taken place, both in the way that Job views, views Yahweh, but in the way that Yahweh views Job. Because even if you can't put God on the cash, you can try to do that. Even if you can't accuse God, you can try and do that. Even if you can't understand God, you can try and, and, and work out rationally what is happening. I mean, that's, after all, the whole point about scholasticism. That's the whole point about the Judeo-Christian theological tradition, isn't it? That you, you can bring ratio to, to the theological table, as it, as it were. And so in that sense, Jung makes the point that God himself changes by, by being put, by being tested morally within this narrative framework. There is something that changes not only in Job and the way that Job sees God, but the way that God sees man as, as well. And that then I think looks forward to the way that Jung wants to provide a, an analytical, psychological understanding of, of the incarnation, of Christianity, of God becoming man, and the sense in which God becomes man in a way which is common to the Western mystical tradition, that we can all have God born within us thinking about my sermon on Christmas Day, which, which Jung refers to in several places, the sense that God is, is, is born in, in various ways, historically, in the, in the incarnation, um, liturgically on Christmas Day, and mystically uh, within the soul of the belief. Hmm. And in, in what way changes God, uh, from Jung's point of view, in the book of Job? I think the change is is that God realizes that he has a, a, a thinking creature and a creature that's able to ask moral questions as well, like where does evil where, where does evil come from? Of course, that question only makes sense in terms of the narrative that one has it in the in the biblical book of Job, or in terms of the theological tradition of Judeo Christianity. In, in other religious traditions, I don't think the idea of, of, of good and evil is necessarily as, as polarized as, as opposites, as one fact. I mean, it's a different question to ask about evil in Hinduism, evil in Buddhism, evil in Shinto. They, they, it's a very Judeo-Christian problem. And so to ask the question about where does, where does evil come from is immediately to, to situate oneself within a particular intellectual historical tradition, which is, to be fair, the major, the dominant one in the, in the West. That's the tradition which, which Jung, for the most part, sees himself as, as working in. Mm. That, let me give you a point of comparison that might help, I think, uh, Jacob, is I think we can see that what Jung is trying to do in answer to Job is, is very close to what Hegel tries to do in, in his writings on religion and his writings on, on Christianity. And if we, if, if we go to the, the lectures that, that Hegel gives on the philosophy of religion, on the philosophy of history, Hegel wants to present Christianity as representing a significant shift in human consciousness, a significant shift in the way that the spirit, as he would say, man manifests itself. And 
without wanting to get caught up in the, in the te- technicalities of, of, of Hegel's argument, that what Hegel seems to be seems to be arguing is that in Christianity there is there is an approximation of the divine and the human in a way which he thinks is not reflected in in Judaism. Now, people of, of Jewish faith may want to take issue with Hegel around around that, but I think that's the kind of argument that we can see Jung in an entirely non and as we know, Jung doesn't have a lot of time for, for Hegel and has some rather negative comments to, to make about him. And I don't think he takes his argument from Hegel, but one can see that he, he's offering something which is, which is in line with what Hegel is trying to do. And remember, what Hegel is trying to do is, I think he's trying to do, is to save religion is that he's, he's trying to intellectualize in a demythologized way, in a kind of turbocharged philosophical way, what is happening in this, this great Christian traditions, he would see it, that, that he's received, but which is for various reasons in the 18th and 19th century, simply seen as not working any. And partly that's to do with changes in church authority. It's partly to do with the work that that's done by the Jungian school on knowledge and understanding how the Bibles came has come into the being, as well as the as well as the historical moment. That you can't in the nineteenth century have a medieval view of of Christianity simply because we're 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 no longer medieval human human beings. It seems that Jung is saying something which is which is structurally similar to it, which is to say. In the in the twentieth century, and in the context of all the evils that have happened in the in, in, in the twentieth century, even though Jung doesn't actually have an awful lot to say about them, and and doesn't specifically refer to them, given all the evil that's happened in the twentieth century, can we still believe in God? You know, it's it's a bit like to paraphrase Adorno's remark about you can't write poetry after Auschwitz, it you can't do theology after Auschwitz. Hmm. Significant, of course, that Jung never talks about Auschwitz. Looking at Hegel and Jung as wanting to save Christianity or save religion, would you also say that it is an attempt to reform? Is it Jung as a reformer coming out in this answer to Job? Shambhasani writes in Lament of the Dead, incorporating evil into the Godhead is the great theme of the book. And he says that it was in answer to Job that the theology first articulated in Liber Novus, found its definitive expression and elaboration. I think, I think Son is right in, in his encapsulation of, of, of Jung's endeavor in this way, or the, the argument that's put forward in the Red Book, and which is then explored in, in answer to Job about incorporating evil into the, in, into the Godhead. Very strange, very strange idea, but, but I think Son is right. I think that's the, that's the kind of phraseology that we find from Jung. So, so what is it? What is he doing there with it? I, in part, I think it's it's tied up with Jung's obsession with this question of the third and the fourth. And we noticed that, and again, that's maybe another topic that we can we can pursue on another occasion. But he's 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 insistent in several writings, including in Volume Eleven, the Collected Works and Psychology and Religion, with this idea that a trinity is somehow incomplete. And that it needs to be completed by being turned into a in, into a four by by turned by being turned into a quaternity by reintegrating or or integrating for the first time something which has been excluded or, or shut out or ignored or repressed. I suppose you could you could say 
in in the Trinitarian in the in, in the formulation of things in terms of in terms of three. So if we if we map that onto the the Christian tradition, well, it's very obvious what the Trinity is. There it is: God, Father, Son, and 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 Holy. So what is that fourth going to be? And it seems to me that Jung has various goes at, at proposing what's going to turn that trinity in, into a quaternity. And one of those repressed things is, well, if all of these things, are these, these three terms are masculine, then that fourth occluded term is going to be the feminine. If the three terms are good, then the fourth term is going to be evil. If the three terms are light, then it's going to be dark. And, and so that's what I think Sonu is trying to, trying to draw attention to there. But of course, that, that seems to me a highly problematic set of things that are occluded on Jung's account, not least by saying, well, on one account, what's missing from the Trinity is something feminine. And that's to say the feminine is the fourth element. But it also seems very strange for saying, well, on another way of looking at it, what's occluded is, is evil. So does that mean that the feminine is the evil? And that seems to be one of the curious questions that arises in answer to Joe. Would you agree that this is the book where you most clearly can see Jung's theology being expressed in answer to Job, that there is a line between the Red Book and his personal experiences and this book and his attempt at presenting some sort of well, reformation I, of Christian ideas or? Well, I think a very good question is, is you know, it, is it really, in the strictest sense of the term, a theology at all? And we remember the numerous occasions Jung comes when, when, when people say, "Well, you can't say that about God." Is that Jung says, "Well, of course, I'm not saying it about God. I'm saying it about the God image. I'm saying it about the the, the God uh, the God archetype." But if all we have is a God archetype or a God image, then you know, you might as well say, "Well, it's it's the human understanding of God." Again, thinking about it in a Hegelian way or a Feuerbachian way to say that. God really is only an idea that you have. And so if we talk about God, then the theology is essentially psychology or theology is essentially philosophy. I think the lines that Feuerbach and Hegel would put seem to me very, very similar to what Jung does when he says, well, it's not theology, then it's going to be psychology, but it's the psychology which uses an awful lot of, an awful lot of theological uh, language. And also, of course, reflects an awful lot of theological understanding as well. I mean, it, it, it's clear that Jung has reflected meditated on the book of Job, and as we know in that text and from the collected works is immensely learned it's immensely erudite so he, he brings full force of his of his learning he brings the full force of his 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 intellect and the full force of his emotional responses to this text with its this provocative question well if god is good where does evil come from and and Jung's even more provocative answer which is that, well, evil has in some way to be incorporated into, into God. But again, I think I'd want to ask, in what sense is that actually a valid notion of God? Or, or in what sense is that a valid Christian or Judeo-Christian understanding of, understanding of God? I think, for example, Augustine says in his, in his Confessions, he says, in Book 7, he says, I surveyed the things below you. He said, speaking to God, and I saw that they do not wholly exist, nor wholly not exist. They exist being from you, but they do not exist not being you. And, you know, this Augustinian conception of, 
of God would, would preclude evil. He, express, he expressly says it, it, it precludes evil. That's why he can talk about God as being a thing of perfect, perfect beauty. Augustine says, again, book seven of Confessions, he says, there is simply no evil in you, he says, not only for you, but for the world of your creation. For nothing is able to break in from the outside and wreck the order you have set in place. Now, that's the Christian conception. Let's, let's say, let's, let's equate August, Augustine's view with the, with the Christian tradition. And you can see, you also somebody disagrees with that. If we're talking about integrating evil into God, it's simply not playing the same, the same ball game. I think there are Hegelian and Feuerbachian elements, which we would say that it is. Or is it a psychological game? And again, Jung himself says that's the kind of response that he makes to Victor White, isn't he? He says, well, I'm, I'm explaining what I go through with my patients, with my clients. I'm explaining what I went through myself. He'll say in other ways as well, and we can see that that's true of, of, of what's going on in the um, in, in, in the rape book. But for me, that question is, if we're talking about incorporating evil into God, is that in, does that in any way make sense from the Christian point of view, bearing in mind what Augustine it clearly and expressly says, and I think we can take him as you know, speaking past prototype for the Christian tradition as a whole. Does it make sense to talk about integrating evil into, into God? Or, or in that sense, does it make sense to talk about integrating the, the feminine into God. In, in a way, the feminine is already there through the, the, the Holy Spirit, who is, who is said to have feminine characteristics to the idea of Sophia, divine wisdom associated with the Holy Spirit, associated with Logos, with the Son of God, therefore Christ as, 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 as well. And I know that Jung gets very excited, doesn't he, in, in 1950 50 or 51 with the proclamation of the, the Assumption of the Virgin Mary, he, he often wondered at the time how many people got as excited about it as Jung did, but, but he really does crack open the argumentational champagne and says, look, bingo, this is what I've been going on about. Here is the integration of the feminine into the Trinity. Except it would seem to me, well, as much as I can understand the, uh, the doctrine, it's, well, it's not as if it's something which is invented in 1950, it's confirmed as a doctrine in 19, 1950. And anyway, the idea of an assumption is not to say that, that, that Mary becomes God. It's a very interesting question as to what, what actually is. Does it mean to say Mary is, is assumed into, into heaven? But it would seem to me that, that any Roman Catholic would say that, that it's a misunderstanding of the doctrine to say that it means that Mary becomes God. That's, that's not what's going on in the, in the doctrine. Interesting to note as well as a kind of related element, and, and Jung never mentions it, which is aside from the biblical book of Job, there are other apocryphal texts which talk about Job, including the Testament of Job. And the Testament of Job concludes with, with Job being ascended into heaven. So on the one hand, Mary goes up into heaven, Job going up in heaven. They can all meet up there and have a nice conversation about the Odyssey, perhaps. Well, I, I'm still curious about what, what did you imagine Jung's reply to be to that question, why is there evil? Yeah, I think it's... I, I think it's because Jung frames it in relation to this almost obsessional question that he has about, about the opposites and, and the problem of the opposites. And of course, Jung would say in relation to those, those passages that I was talking about from, from Augustine, he will say, well, look, there we go. This, this is, this is my, precisely my whole point, is that by putting emphasis on, 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 the, on the goodness of God, the, the, 
the lightness, the light quality, the positive, the creative aspects of, of God, where does that leave those other opposites, destruction, evil, and, and darkness? And of course, Augustine's question to that is to say, well, really, those things don't exist. They exist only in as much as they are this famous doctrine of privatio boni. It, it's merely a privation of, of, of goodness. And I think it's it's a difficult argument for us to for us to understand today. But I think I think you can see why why Augustine would would get very upset if he were to read Answer to Job because he would say, no, the whole point is that those dark elements are going to be redeemed in the sense of falling away. They're not going to be redeemed in the sense of being integrated. I don't think from an Augustinian or a more general Christian point of view, it makes sense to talk about incorporating evil into the into the Godhead. And of course, that's why I think Jung's this the shifting that he does between the theological and the psychological, it's partly an argumentational tactic. I think it's also partly being honest about it as well. He'll say, well, but I'm talking about God as the the image that we have, the the image of totality or perfection. So what does that say about the evil that's in our own lives? Or what does it say about the evil aspects of ourselves? Or to use another term, he talks about the inferior functions, the inferior side of, of the selves. Or what does that say about, to use the other Jungian term, where does that leave us in terms of the resentiment that we might feel? And, and also then, where does, that leave, where does that leave us, to use the term that, that the theology does, where does that leave us in relation to evil, the evil that is, with, that, that is within us? And I think that on, on this point, we we have to salute Jung for for raising this this question in the in the 20th century, raising this question of, of of evil, even though, as I say, he seems to be curiously reluctant to point to what would be very obvious examples of of evil in his in his own time. And it strikes me as strange, possibly problematic in, in some ways, that that in the, the works that that Jung writes. After the 1940s, so in the in the 50s, he approaches the question of evil. He approaches the question of darkness. He approaches the question of negativity increasingly and exclusively through alchemy. Where it seems to me that the problem is is okay, it's there, but it's less critical than if you think about it in terms of Second World War, in terms of the Holocaust, in terms of the concentration camps. And and Jung seems seems reluctant to want to point to those as as evidence of the urgency that he's saying, well, it's human beings that, that did these things. How do we explain that human beings can carry out such monstrous and, and, and barbaric acts? And I think that's his question. The theological question is, why does God allow that to happen? And I think that's just another way of asking this question, which is, you know, why, do, why do good people do bad things? Right? Why does a good God allow evil to happen? Can be retranslated as, why do good people do, do, do evil things? And of course, that's one of the most shocking things about the about the Holocaust of the tales of you know, guard camps quite quite happily you know, going into work to these places where where people are systematically brutalized, dehumanized, and murdered, and then going home for for supper and putting on some Beethoven and listening to a record player. I'm reminded of Ette Hillison. I'm not sure if you're. Aware oh, yes. of her work, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. And Ette Hillesum, who died in Auschwitz, but who wrote her famous diaries at the Westerbork camp in, in Holland in 1941, around there. 
And she was also inspired by Jung through her analyst, Julius Speer. And she says somewhere, and I'm not going to quote it, unfortunately, perfect. There is no savior God. She knew where she was going. She knew her whole family was going to Auschwitz. She knew exactly what was there. Mm. There's no saving God. There's no savior God. But what we can do is to cultivate a place inside of us to hold. We have to carry God now. We have to carry him inside of us. That's our work for this time. Yeah. It's also this... Jung's statement that to be unconscious is evil. But he's saying, if I understand it right, that God is unconscious in this story. God becomes conscious through the interaction with the human, through, through Job. So the work of incarnation now has to be done by, by individuals or by humans. Human has to do the work of God. It's not only about evil, it's also about the new type of responsibility for the individual to carry God forward. Well, well, I think I think you've given a very good summary, if I may say so, of of, of Jung's argument in the in the work. And I, I I just want to say that, but that's fine as that's fine as an argument. But to me, that sounds so much more like a Galian Feuerbachian approach than one from from any existing theological tradition with which I'm with which I'm familiar. You know, again, we go back to Augustine. No, it is God who's the creator, and we are the creature. Pretty clear way of. Like, Pretty clear line management there, we might say. And Jung absolutely confuses that. You're quite right. Inverts it by saying that not only has has Job changed throughout this encounter, but crucially, Yahweh has changed as 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 well. And I think that's the point that Murray Stein makes as 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 well. That when Murray is talking about God, he says there is a new relationship that comes between God and his and, and his creation. Now, I suppose that theologically, one would say that the Christianity sees a new relationship existing between God and His and and His creation. In fact, that's expressly there. I think, isn't it, in the Gospel of John, when when Christ says to His disciples, "Look, I'm now going to talk to you as as friends, as as brothers. I'm going to talk to you as brethren." So there is this greater approximation between between the divine and the and the human. But of course. As I understand it, in Christian, in standard Christian theology, that comes about through God's initiative. It is, it is through God becoming man. In line with thinking of Paul's letter, I think it's to the Ephesians, where he he talks about God having this plan, which is worked out in advance, that He is going to send the Son to Earth and and save us. So that comes out of out of out of God's initiative rather than the human initiative. And it, it seems to me that's that's the that's the crucial difference between is this is this something philosophical or theological, is this something philosophical or psychological, or is this something theological? Is is the question of of, of initiative? Because it seems to me, from a theological perspective, what the incarnation shows is is God's initiative in in saving humankind rather than rather than the human one. Sure. It calls upon us, going back to Meister Eckhart, that we, we allow him to be reborn within us, or that we ask that he be reborn within within us. But of course, Meister Eckhart, famously accused of being of, of, of being a heretic, but one might say it's a kind of heretic Christianity, or maybe a kind of Gnostic Christianity that that Jung's wanting to propose in this text. But I don't think it's anything that that Augustine, at any rate. But I think also you, in uh, Memories Deeds Reflection, he writes that the problem of Job was foreshadowed by this dream he had about his father. Mm-hmm. And that is the dream in the temple, this divan and the salon. And the question again that we discussed before, where Jung's father is kneeling and kissing the floor. 
Yeah. And Jung is imitating, but he cannot, yeah, it is one millimeter, something that also Wolfgang Lagrisch has discussed. Jung cannot surrender, so he imitates his dream father and he gets, he, he gets to understand, he doesn't see it, but he gets to understand that there's another level here where he, the higher presence is. And that's where you see the, the, the Uraya, yeah? Absolutely. In that dream, there's also been this interpretation about the creature versus the creator. And the says that the creature has to sometimes overwin or come further than the creature. There's almost a competition, it seems like, between the creature and the creature in Jung's, in Jung's mind. But somehow that he, his understanding of that dream uh, seems somehow to play also in, into his theology in Nasa to Job. Yeah, no, I think that's, I, I, I think that's, very, I think that's very helpful. It, it, to my mind, it certainly indicates that, that, that Jung takes these problems uh, you know, very seriously. And either though there is a kind of a certain kind of playfulness in in answer to Job, and I think there are there are flashes of humor, there are flashes of of, of sarcasm. It's, it's it's a very emotional, egg laden kind of a kind of text as well as well as a, a one which operates at a high intellectual level. There are there are flashes of of a dark kind of humor, a, a sort of sarcastic outbursts which are in there, uh, which are in there as as well. But, but it's actually taking these problems seriously. And I think that that's something with, even if the relationship between, between Victor White and, and Jung came to grief, is, is something that one respects and can see the significance of Jung today, which is, which is taking, taking these theological questions about evil seriously and trying to, within terms of the system which he's developing, just in the same way that Hegel and Feuerbach do, formulate some kind of a some kind of a response to it. So, so we're very far away from the the kind of the popular expression of of religion of everybody clapping hands and singing kumbaya and everything's going to be fine and God loves us all and and that kind of banal Christianity. And you always can clearly see has no time for that. That he's he's wanting he's wanting to actually understand what's going on in this in this religious d- dynamic and he thinks he has again like Hegel like Feuerbach oh I've got a very handy intellectual system which I've just been working out which we can translate that into and which gives us answers as to as to what we're meant to do next or, or point to what we're meant to do next and again I think maybe we can see in Jung the same kind of question arising that one would find with Hegel and Feuerbach which is to say, okay, well, fine, again, Wilhelm Friedrich, you've, you've translated Christianity into, into your German idealist terms, but, but what does that then look like in terms of religious practice? What does it look like in terms of, in terms of liturgy? What does it look like in terms of, terms of praxis? Same thing, I think, Bob would answer to Feuerbach in the, at the essence of, 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 of mankind, of humankind, is, okay, well, where does, that now, where does that now take us? And of course, it's significant that that German idealist tradition that one finds in, in uh, Hegel and, and Feuerbach actually then shifts into, as we know, Marxism, that it takes us into a very materialist dimension. Actually, then in the case of Marxism, I suppose we're fair to say a kind of atheist tradition. With Jung, it doesn't, it doesn't go that way. Not only because I think Jung, as a kind of rather bourgeois individual, doesn't like left-wing uh, politics and doesn't like communist politics and, and, and Marxism, but, but also because 
he's much happier talking with notions of geist and spirit and, and archetype and, and keeping things working at that, at that spiritual or psychological level in, in, in a way that it turns out that isn't the way that it went with, with Hegel and, and Freud. Well, that, that's a great difference. Noang also developed techniques, dream work, active imagination. He was also delivering the tools for people to, to, yeah. to go on a path similar to his their own path. But still, although you always says he was not a theologian, and although he's often uh, be criticized for not being a great theologian, in a way he is delivering a theology. And that theology is implicit in the union uh, corpus. And there's so many believers. There's many people, you know, not praying, but doing active imagination and such. This is also part of the critique. Buber, and I would like to discuss that with you, Buber's yeah. critique of, of this work as a Gnostic work. Yeah, that's, yeah th that's right. I mean, I mean, just to, to, just to briefly pick up on something you were saying at the beginning there is, I suppose it would be fair to say that there are very many different Jungs as well. And that there is one which is more, how, how shall I say, closer to the aspect of a, of, of a church. I'm hesitating to use the word cult for obvious reasons and, and so on, but which, which does have a, you know, a, let's say offers a kind of spiritual exercises. Let's talk about it that way or it, it, spiritual exercises in the sense that talks, talks about it. So that those kinds of tools of active imagination and so on that you're, that you're referring to, but, but that, that your system could also be used and, and, and still also I understand is, is used because of his writings on, on typology as tools, not for self-discovery, but of management. I'm thinking of Myers-Briggs and this very different kind of the way that, that Jung can be received as, as well. So, so he's, he's a multifaceted figure, not too keen on the Myers-Briggs kind of aspect, I have to say, but nevertheless, there, there it is. And it's obviously going to stand as the part to that, to, to that tradition as, as, as well. In regard to the the reception of the of, of of the work, I mean, there is this there is this remark that I think is Anthony Storr quotes as well from Jung, isn't it? Where he says, "What I've produced is pure poison, but I owe it to my to my people." It's a great quote, and it, it has the kind of ring of truth about it. And it's the kind of thing, this kind of thing you would say, because in a way, it is it it is pure poison. It said it would have been pure poison for for Victor White on the on, on the Roman Catholic. On the Roman Catholic side, because from a Catholic perspective, you just can't talk about God like that. I mean, it doesn't make any sense to to, to talk about it. And I think it's very poignant of the the, the relationship that's there between Victor White and 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 Jung, where they start off and they they think they're talking about the same thing, and then it becomes clear as as the conversation goes on that they're really talking about completely different things. That's leaving aside the whole question of the sorrel mystica and all that aspect of. Very strange kind of friendship that, 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 that goes on. Of course, these days, they wouldn't have been writing letters to each other. They've been sending emails. So, so we would have had even more material because they would have been able to send several emails and in one day and probably attachments as well and things like that. So I wonder what an email correspondence between, between Victor Weiss and, and Jung might have looked like. Would, would it have gone in a different direction? Would it, would it have stopped the break taking place in some way? Or, or would it have speeded it up? Maybe. But then... Sense of well, we're really playing a different kind of game. I think is there in relation to and 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 his critique of Jung, and 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 Jung's response, which at first sight is rather surprising, isn't it? Because Buber accuses Jung, or Buber describes. You shouldn't say accuse. He he. he actually, I don't think Buber does think of it as a as so much of an accusation. It's it's a description. Buber thinks, well, I've seen this before, and what 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 Jung is talking about looks to me very much like, like Gnosticism. And that would seem a fair enough description because after all, Jung does quote lots of Gnostic 
writers, and you've got the young codexes kind of floating around. People are buying him Gnostic scriptures and and logic within the, the institute and 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 so on. So it, it doesn't seem such a strange accusation or poor description to make. And 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 yet Jung immediately goes into in, into reverse gear by saying, no, no, absolute Gnosticism, nothing to do with me. I am the last person that you could describe as a Gnostic, even though we know he has this Gnostic ring on that he used to keep on his on on his finger and and so on. And I suppose in some ways that seems a bit of a, res, a, a surprising response, except perhaps it isn't, and it's a very Gnostic response, which is to to hide. And to disguise and to refuse to fall into line with the interpretive schemas that that, that are operated that, that are offered to at one, and perhaps it's not so surprising that that Jung would say, "Well, no, I'm not, because I'm not going to allow myself to be categorized by by somebody else." And he, he feels that the description of himself as the Gnostic is a kind of cat- categorization, but also that he might say, "Well, look, no, again, you misunderstood me. Just as I'm not trying to offer a." Christian theological response, which is in line with what the Vatican is going to teach, or in line with what the Tübingen Steft is going to teach in terms of terms of Protestantism, I, I suppose. Just as I'm not going to fall in line with, with what those organizations are saying, nor am I going to allow myself to be told, well, you know, this is what Basilides says, so that must be true, or this is what Bantina says, or this must be true. In other words, he wants to use Gnosticism in the way that he uses all those other intellectual sources, sometimes mystical, Weister Eckhart, Angelos Silesios, sometimes philosophical, I suppose preeminently they're Nietzsche. Uh, no, I don't think I don't think Jung would be happy with being described as a Nietzschean, although he is spending years and years commenting on Zarathustra in great in, in great detail. So it's it's a rejection of of this description of him by saying, Yeah, you're simply lining up with what these other folk are doing. In a way, I think it's Jung trying to say, no, I'm trying to work out my own answer. And I'm Jungian, thank you very much. I am sui generis. But even then, as we know, at one point he says, well, thank goodness I'm not a Jungian because he doesn't like the way that he sees his, his system as being systematized or, or, or presented in, in a popularizing systemic way. And he thinks that's missing the authentic, prophetic, I suppose, Peter Kingfield would say, aspect of, uh, of, of what he's trying to of what he's trying to do. So I think if we if we see it in terms of, you know, anytime somebody comes up with a label to Jung and tries to put it on him, he says, no, I'm not that. Thank you very much. And that applies to Gnosticism too. But what I find so remarkable in, in Jung's response there um, is this that he disowns seven sermons of the dead. He says it's the sin from, from early in his life. I wonder, again, because that's the question about what, what did you try to build, you know, a, a, yeah, a theology or a new system of sorts? Because at times it seems like that, although he all the time, most in answer to says, no, this is just my my experience. But at other times, and also Shandasan understands there's a lineage here between his early experiences until here. And he had that experience and he wanted to convey that. And he used theological language to to speak of God is, needs to be completed with, with you know. Yeah. Yes, yeah. On this disowning his experience in a way, seven sermons of the dead. Yeah, no, I think that's a good. I, I, I think that's a good point. I, I suppose we ought we ought to remember, aren't we, that you know, Jung had no idea, did he, that his his red book was ever going to be published. He he originally published the seven sermons, and it was you know given to a, a very small number of, of of people. And I suppose that if he regards it as something which is intensely private and intensely personal. Only for sharing with a few uh, with a few people, so 
That's true of the seven sermons. I think it's true of the Red Book as well, isn't it? It was shown to a very select number of, of, of people that if he's going to say, well, hang on, Mr. Boober, this is not for you. <laughs> it's for, this is for myself primarily and for the few people that I choose to, to share it with. And I suppose describing it as a, as, as a Jugendzund, as a sort of sin of his youth, is, is, is in a way a kind of proleptic gesture, is that he's, he's anticipating some of the critique that would, that would be made if the Red Book were to be published, or that indeed did, has indeed taken place subsequent to the publication of the, of the Red Book. And whilst I'm delighted that the Red Book has, has, has been published, and I'd be even more delighted if I understood what was going on in it, I think, at the same time, it is intensely personal, intensely private. And I think that when I was first reading the, the Red Book, that, that I did have the sense of, ought I to be here? Ought, ought I to be looking at this? Tread softly for you, tread on my dreams and, and so on. Tread softly for you, tread on my visions. And it might seem a bit rich for someone who's published on the Red Book and talks about the, the Red Book. But there are moments where I suddenly have a twinge of conscience and think, well, actually, I don't know, should, should, should we be doing this? At the end of the day, well, one, it's out there now, so it's too late. And I think it actually bolsters Jung, it supports Jung. I think the worst position would be the one that we were in for many years where we knew that there was the Red Book, but we didn't know what was in it. I, I don't think that's going to be a sustainable sustainable position. But I wonder if that response to the seven sermons is, is to say, look, I can see that I'm going to be profoundly misunderstood if all of this stuff gets gets out there. And bearing in mind some of the comments the people have made about the Red Book, well, well maybe you was right. Maybe he could foresee some of the criticism that was going to come his way if the seven sermons were dead or did the Red Book itself were to be published. Mm. Why do you think it was so difficult for Jung to be viewed as a Gnostic? Why was he fighting that so hard? Yeah, I, I, I think part of it is in terms of this, in, in this way that Jung presents himself in, in, in various ways, depending on the audience that he has and depending on the kind of mode of self-presentation that he's in at particular, at particular times. And again, I think it's, you know, Peter Kinkley is quite good about bringing, bringing this out in his book, Catafalque where he says, well, look, you know, Kinkley's view is that, that Jung was a prophet and, and that Jung saw himself as a, 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 as a prophet. But the, one of the things that prophets do is not simply to go around prophesying, prophesying all the, uh, all the time, is that, is that, that Isaiah or, or Jeremiah or some of the other, some of the other uh, prophets do prophetic things which have to be understood. So they, they play with a clay pot or is it... Is, Is that Hosea marries a prostitute? I think he lasts his head to grow, to grow long. So, so they do things which I think, you know, we wouldn't say that's prophetic. In fact, we'd probably say that's, that's, path, that's pathological. Uh, and so there's that whole fear of being misunderstood, which is part of prophecy or which is built into prophecy. It's actually, it's actually called to it. And, and, and that I think is this line in Isaiah, which, which Christ himself quotes, where the disciples ask him, why do you go around talking to everybody in parables? And he says, quoting Isaiah, so that they may see, but that they that they may look, but not see; that they may might hear, but not understand. And so, this whole question of how do you transmit the message is built into that prophetic tradition. Hmm. And I think certainly that Kingsley write that Jung is prophetic, at least in this sense, and maybe others, maybe others too, in this sense of how you go about communicating message and how you, if you want to say. How do you package it? How you how do you present it? How how you market it? That is terribly important.
But isn't there also something in his reaction that has to do with the view of God that he's presenting in answer to Job? This is a God which has the dualism integrated, so to speak. It has both sides. While I guess agnosticism is, is also the idea of good and bad forces fighting mm-hmm. over, over the human human soul, or that there is something that goes beyond the all-loving God. Isn't that a part of his argument that God is double-sided? God has these two sides, and that's the true monotheism is to see that God holds also the evil aspect. Otherwise, we're splitting things into God is all good and evil is all bad. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think that's. Uh, I, th- I think that's right. You know, one of one of the responses that Jung could have made to prove people would have, would have been, well, well, what kind of a Gnostic do you think I am? Because I mean, it, it is a very broad label, isn't it? And, and one might have one might have wanted to go back to people and say, well, you know, is it is it Bethlehemian or Valentinian? What, what what particular school do you think I do, do you think I I, I, I belong to? Um, and I think you're right that there is this. I'm thinking of the fact the, uh, the Vatican produced this document, Jesus Christ, the Bearer of the Water of Life, a Christian reflecting on the New Age, and it's, it, it's I suppose the moment when when the Vatican engages with with Jung and and accuses Jung not so much of being agnostic but of being New Age. So, and I think that one can sympathise with the Vatican's response in as much as it's saying, look, what these people are doing is not what we're doing, and there is a problem for us potentially a problem for us both, if if people get mixed up and confused about, about what our respective projects are and, and and what they're meant to be and what they're meant to be doing. And I think that Jung himself would resist having having the label New Age applied to him, just as he objects the label Gnostic being being put on him, and just as he objects the label Jungian being being put on him. Because in all cases, that's people trying to circumscribe what he's what he's what he's doing, control him, contain him, pop him in this neat this neat little box, rather than allowing his his texts, his techniques, his ideas to work on one. And I'm thinking of that remark that he makes about how each of us should have our own red book, should have our own should have our own cathedral for the for the soul, should have our own kind of project of existential authenticity. And of course, that's at the heart of the problem. I suppose it's there in, in Nietzsche very, very clearly when Zarathustra says, you know, the way is something which doesn't exist. Dean Vekipasi, there isn't the one way. And you can't all you can't present a gospel of existential authenticity as something as well, you have to do this, that, and the other. If you're going to be authentic, you've got to go and do it for you've you've got to do it for yourself. Thinking of the moment in the Bondi Python film where they all say, Yes, we're all individuals. Well, that's Precisely undermining, isn't it, what the idea of an individual is? And I think that's why Jung, as a strategic move, doesn't want to have labels applied to him because that will simply get in the way of what he's what he's wanted to do, which is to evoke a response from from us. Either, I suppose, as in in a therapeutic mode, as patients, as patients or clients, or in the way that I suppose a lot of people, including myself, have come to it, which is through the effect of his texts. The effect of the the, the the collected works, and now they that, now the experience of reading the red bookers the red book as well, and that when one reads the red book, it seems to me that it is it, it is profoundly useful as a text in, in showing that. But it's not going to be a work which will which will leave you alone, or you can remain neutral to. So you have to have if you if Jung is trying to produce an answer to Job, we are all trying to produce our answer to the red book. Mm. You ask yourself in the conclusion of your book, does answer to Job 
Tell us how Jung finally ceased to be a Christian and became instead a believer in a different religion, perhaps the first Jungian. Yeah, I was curious how now, 20 years later, how, how would you answer that question yourself? Well, yeah, I think I probably wouldn't formulate it in the first place, 20, 20 years on. I suppose it's also worth reflecting on what I really wanted to do in the commentary was to try and help it on in that, in that way. Obviously, what I didn't know was what was going to be in the Red Book. And I think that the Red Book, I don't think I would necessarily take away anything that I wrote about in the, in, in the commentary, but I'd want to add a kind of third part, I think, which is about situating answer, answer to Job, not only in terms of preceding books like, like, like Aeon and perhaps some of the writings on, on alchemy, but say, well, look, we've got this amazing thing with, with Jung that he begins, if you like, with the Red Book. Of course, the Red Book comes after all the work that he's done in transformations and symbols of the libido. So that's another kind of discussion. What's the relationship between those, between those two books? But if we take the Red Book as, as representing some kind of a starting point or a, a second starting point after transformations and symbols of, of, of the libido, the, the concern that we have there, again, which is a kind of riposte to Nietzsche, God is not dead, he is as alive, he is a, as alive as ever. That's an inversion of Nietzsche. The whole question of is Dubar and turning God into, into an egg, what does Jung say? It's not about can God save us, it's can we save God? So we've got an extraordinary inversion of the of theological tradition there. It's all about how Jung or humankind can redeem God. That's the big theme of it, which is in the work, isn't it? So we get that at the beginning. That then, I think, casts a new light on, on what's happening at the end, if you like. Not quite the end, but one of the late works in answer to, in answer to Job, where he reworks through this issue, which we've, we've, we've touched upon at various points in our conversation about you know, the notion of salvation, the question of, 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 of evil, the problem of the, of, of the opposites. And if in the Red Book, everything is reflected inwardly because it's to do with, with his visions, then in question of answer to Job, it's reflected outwardly by engaging with these, with the biblical text of the discussions and, and indeed the visions, the, the encounter that takes place between Job and Yahweh in that biblical, in that biblical text. And I suppose that what I would, what I'd want to do if I, if I was able to write the book again, would be, would be to try and, and bring out and tease out what defines the difference between the Christian reading and, and, and the Jungian reading. And I think, I think I'd, I'd try and formulate in this way and say that on the Christian reading of the book of Job, what really matters is that Job comes to understand Christ as being wisdom, as being logos. This, this moment, the famous moment where he says, I know that my redeemer liveth and, and so on. A beautiful uh, manuscript collection where you can see Job seeing this kind of, this kind of figure and on the Christian reading, I think the reason why this book is important is because Job understands that this Redeemer is going to come, that Job is there as a witness to the Logos, as a, wit as a witness to Sophia or as to wisdom. But I think the Jungian view of Job is related, but significantly different, that on the Jungian reading, why Job is significant is because he is a kind of prefiguration of the suffering Christ. Not that he sees Christ, but that in his sufferings, he is a prefiguration of the suffering which is going to describe the redemptive act of Christianity in the New Testament.
So when you make this division between the union reading and a Christian reading, and also you're saying this question maybe you wouldn't formulate it in the same way 20 years later. Yeah, I'm still curious about, yeah, do, do you view union as, as, as a Christian or, or being a union? Being a union is not being a Christian, or how, how do you understand it? Well, I know, I mean, there are lots of Christians who are Jungians, and therefore lots of Jungians who are Christians. So, 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 so plainly they are that they are compatible in that in, in that way. As a as, as a matter of fact, I think I would have a hard job reconciling them, just because it just because it seems to me that that that, that ultimately the game of theology and, and the game of psychology have crucial points of categorical difference between them. But I think it certainly shows that that Jung is someone who who takes religion seriously. And perhaps that is, at, at this particular moment, the greatest resource and the greatest help that you can do with religion, either religion in general or with Christianity in particular, is to, uh, is to take it seriously, is to engage with it, is to, is to present it at a, at, at a time, at a historical moment when knowledge of the Bible, knowledge of biblical traditions, knowledge of, of what biblical symbols means seems to be disappearing very, very fast. There are, th th there's a moment talking to the Guild of Partial Psychology in London where, 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 where Jung says with great pathos, he says, you know, I, I want to believe all of these things, but I'm, I'm just unable to do them anymore. And, and I, think, I think he's talking there in the 50s, that, that really, to my mind, anticipates the, the loss of the symbol that we have, of the, that we have at the moment. Bread and wine aren't automatically seen as, 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 as Eucharistic symbols, but are more kind of picnic items. And at the image of somebody suffering on, a, suffering on a cross, you know, we have these debates about whether British Airways stewardesses are allowed to wear crucifixes around their neck and, and so on. But that is such a kind of trivialization of this. How do we understand the, the figure of suffering, suffering God? And that seems to me that Jung is, is an immensely useful figure for our time, an immensely uncomfortable one as well, because he, he, he keeps on reminding us of this, this question of suffering. And that I think is part and parcel, it's tied up with, is the problem of, of evil, isn't it? That the problem with evil is putting a theological gloss on this question of something which can be very, very visceral. Why is there suffering? Either one's own personal suffering, or what might be even worse, seeing the suffering of other people and and being unable to being unable to to help them, so in a very very happy clappy sterilizing kind of a kind of world which wants to look away from things that are very, that are very difficult, I think one of the one of the ways that I could see Jung at any rate being reconciled with theology is through this insistence on the problem of suffering and the meaning of suffering. If it if if it can if it can be said to have a meaning, I think that you know you think about any pain that you're that you're in. To talk about pain having having a meaning becomes a very very a very very difficult idea, but it, that seems to me essential to the to the theology of, of Christianity and its image of, of the crucified Christ, and it's central to Jung as as well in the in, in, in the Red Book, which does talk about suffering, loss, a sense of immense isolation and bereft, and yet fighting one way through to some kind of reconciliation with that shadowy figure that he meets in the garden at the end of Proof Scrutinist. Mm -hmm.